Hello, and welcome back to How To Be Happy, a podcast where we explore all the ways that we can live a happier life. Each week, we're talking to happiness experts, celebrities, and ordinary people to uncover their secrets to living a good life. My name is Kate DeBrito. I'm your host and guide on this journey into happiness. Let's begin. My guest today is David Gillespie. He's a former corporate lawyer who's now a successful author, writing on a really broad range of subjects. His areas of interest are so diverse, from the problems of sugar consumption to how to beat anxiety and depression. He's also written extensively about toxic people, and his latest book looks at those most toxic of all, the psychopath. It's an interesting conversation, slightly unnerving at times to think that people like this walk amongst us, but David also has some great tips in the meantime on generally living a good life. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good to be here. David, your book, Toxic at Work, is all about surviving those people in the workplace or I guess in any part of your life who are the bullies, the manipulators, and in some cases, the true psychopaths. How did you become interested in this subject? Well, I guess being the victim of a psychopath always um, stokes your interest in such things. Uh, And and just to be clear about terminology, uh, I use the word psychopath to describe a person who is completely lacking in empathy. And so there's two types of people in the world, as far as I'm concerned. There's people who have empathy and people who don't. The vast majority of us have empathy uh, and about one in 20 of us don't. Uh, And it's it's a biological difference between... Uh, the brains of the rest of us and and those one in 20 people. And that total lack of empathy uh, accounts for all of the symptoms, which describe psychopathy, sociopathy, malignant narcissism, bullying. They all get all kinds of labels, depending on how offensive you feel you're being when describing them or talking to them. One in 20 sounds like a lot. Is that Are those people all... Uh, lacking in empathy or are they sort of are they on a grade that they have a little bit or just not as much as as everyone else well it's kind of hard to know the the biological underpinnings of it are that you are lacking a uh, a type of neuron called a von economo neuron which was first described i guess completely in about 2011 so it's, it's relatively recent science but well accepted now the only way to really tell Um, if someone has von Economo neurons or not, is by the way they behave or by shoving their head in an MRI scanner. Mm. Since almost everybody who you would describe as a psychopath is extremely unlikely to consent to shoving their head in an MRI scanner, (laughs) (laughs) the, the numbers are by definition rubbery. But it's reasonably certain that it's around that kind of number, about one in 20. Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of those traits, because I think when you talk about psychopaths, people think silence of the lambs. They think about movies, they think about murderers. And of course, not all psychopaths are murderers. They are Mm -hmm. people with particular traits, though, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So at the core of it is the lack of empathy. Now, what that means for a person is that they are completely unable to take account of you as a human being. So they cannot take into account the way you feel about anything. Uh, And 
they feel about you roughly the way you might feel about, I don't know, the stapler on your desk or something like that. I think in your book you describe it, they said that they might see you as just a chair the way you would, something to step on if you needed to get something, something to sit on. yeah, so furniture is 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 a great example. If I don't say so myself, it, it, it you are there to support them or decorate their place or otherwise help them uh, with their life. And and I guess much like a chair, as long as you do your job, everything's fine. They will sit on you and expect you to do your job of supporting them. And as soon as you don't, they will try to repair you, perhaps. Or if that doesn't work, just chuck you out uh, and get a new one. A lot of psychopaths or the the types of people we're talking about without empathy they disguise themselves quite well though don't they because they're often quite charming I think you say in your book charming manipulators they have to because very very early on they discover that the rest of us are quite put off by people who have no empathy and and I'll give you an example of that if if you were standing in a crowd of people and and I, I don't know you saw a car mow down a pedestrian in front of you you would feel pain you would feel emotional distress you would feel upset about that and they would feel exactly nothing they would look at that and say hmm, that's interesting look how they look how they bounced off the the bonnet of the car and wow look at look at the blood. I didn't realize people had so much blood oh, you know that's terrifying. That, that's how they would look at it and they very quickly realize early in life that that gets them nowhere. You start talking like that in a group of people and you will be immediately ostracized. You will be treated as a dangerous outsider. So very quickly, they learn they have to pretend that they care. And so they look around at the rest of us and they say, wow, okay, so look, uh, they seem upset by this, so I guess I'm supposed to be upset by this as well. Oh, look, they're crying about it. I I, I guess I should too. That seems to be what you're supposed to do. Mm. And so they do it. And they very, very quickly learn through a lot of practice to imitate empathy. And there's a term for that, uh, cognitive empathy, Mm. which is, I guess, manual override, where you think to yourself, what is the appropriate reaction here? And then you try very hard to make sure that you're doing it. Most of us can detect cognitive empathy. Most of us will notice about someone uh, just an imperceptible time lag, in, particularly in situations like that, or in situations where they're in a group uh, and they're having to present a certain way to a group of people. They've got to try and judge on the fly, what is this person expecting of me? What is that person expecting of me? What is that person expecting of me? And sometimes they just get it wrong. Uh, And so people will report frequently that they've spoken to a person and they just feel off. Mm. You know, they, they, they can't put their finger on it, but there's just something wrong about the way they respond. And You've got to trust that gut instinct. It's a it's a good read for most of us, even if we can't nail down exactly what it is that's causing us to think that it's, there's something wrong. David, you said you'd had some firsthand experience with a person like this. Have you have you spoken about that? Are you comfortable talking about that experience? Ah, uh, not not in any great detail. They are still very much alive and kicking. And 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 look, you will find this about anyone who's had any close interaction with a psychopath that is still alive, that they are extremely unwilling to talk about it and very much unlikely to name names. Like and, I have actually heard yeah. people that, because there's a sort of there's a fear that that comes with it. They can be people yes. who are quite deliberate in setting out to destroy you. So. 
Well, they're extremely vindictive. It's one of the characteristics of a psychopath is that they are extraordinarily vengeful. They see any even mild criticism of them as a direct attack on them. Mm. And they will usually have almost no ability to stop themselves attempting to retaliate. They have no control over the duration of that retaliation. So they will hold a grudge forever and they will try to come after you forever. Uh, Look, you've been a journalist for a long time, Kate. Um, I'd be really, really surprised if you've never encountered a psychopath. Mm. And you can probably name more of them than I can. And most people listening to this will know somebody in their lives, either that they work with or that they're related to, who fits this description. Well, that's the interesting thing about some psychopaths is that they can actually be quite successful. So there are people who are highly successful in their chosen field. And you name a couple like the former president of the United States who who have the traits of, of a psychopath. Because why is that? Why do they tend to be so successful? Because they'll just roll over anyone in their way? Yeah. I mean, many of the structures of modern organisations, including politics, actually benefit psychopaths. Mm. They do very well uh, in those structures because they rely on something that uh, a feature about us, which they consider an extraordinary weakness. Our empathy leads to us trusting people. Mm. Our default reaction to something when we first encounter another human is to assume that whatever they tell us is the truth. Now, if it becomes really, really clear that they're lying to us, then we will change that assumption for as long as it is clear that they are lying to us. But then, bizarrely, we will switch back to assuming they're telling us the truth as soon as they say something that is clearly true. Psychopaths don't operate that way. Psychopaths operate on the basis that everybody is lying to them all the time. And they don't trust anybody but they know that we trust them. So they know that if they come into an interview and tell you a bunch of old flannel about a whole bunch of jobs they've just made up, you're more likely than not to believe what they say. Mm. So a person who's prepared to persistently lie and have no regard for the thoughts or or concerns of others does well in organisations that don't check Mm. facts. And Unfortunately, the more we have moved towards being organisations that are sort of, I guess, more loosey-goosey without regulated structures and and processes, the more likely we are to avoid a process that would have otherwise brought a psychopath undone. Mm. Now, you might say, well, okay, well, if a psychopath came in and lied to me about their resume, that would be picked up when we check their resume. But you'd be surprised how many organisations just don't. They go with the perception of the person in front of them. And that's the other thing psychopaths are extraordinarily good at, is they are very good because they have to spend their whole life reading your emotions so that they make sure they mimic properly the appropriate response. So they are professionals at that. And what that translates into is when they are talking to you, they are reading you like a book and they are reflecting back to you exactly what they know you want to hear. So they are the perfect interview candidate. They will be impressive as hell. Mm. So impressive that many people think, I don't need to check this person's resume. I don't need to check anything they're saying. They are incredible. They, you, you're describing really scary-sounding people, people, the sort of people I wouldn't want to come across. I thought it was really interesting when you talked about 
they don't want to be wrong. You said it's not because they mind being wrong because they don't care what other people think. No. It's because they are determined that they are right. It's impossible for them to be wrong. Yes. You, you know, it, it's you're just talking about an actual impossibility. Mm. They consider themselves infallible. And it's it's not an ego thing. It's not a, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good, therefore I don't make mistakes. It's just they're simply incapable of remembering ever having made a mistake. Mm. Even when it's presented to them as a mistake, they can't accept that they got it wrong. Now, look, people who are listening when we referred to the former President Donald Trump might think that's a political statement, but you've done a lot of work on the issue of toxic people, about people who are psychopaths mm. and a lot of research. What convinced you that he is essentially lacking empathy and has those psychopathic <laughs> Look, it's very hard to go back to the to the one thing that convinced me. It's that it's almost as if you produced a checklist of everything you would expect a psychopath to do, mm. and he did it on a daily basis. Mm. Uh, you know, I knew almost nothing about him before he was in the public eye as a as a presidential candidate. But you'd see him give a press conference, or you'd see him do something. And you'd think, wow, that's a, yeah, tick, that's a, that's a psychopathic trait. And it just became overwhelming. The first one, I guess, that really stood out to me was the persistent lying. Mm. So psychopaths lie all the time. They lie the way you and I breathe. Because to them, truth is not an important feature of conversation or, or communication at all. Most humans work on the basis that if you say something, it should be true. And that doesn't mean people won't lie. It's just that our default is to truth. And we default to believing that everybody else is telling the truth for the same reason, that we understand that everybody tends to default to truth. It doesn't mean we believe people can't lie. It just means that most of the time we accept most people are telling the truth. Psychopaths don't care about the truth, not because they want to lie. It's just that they don't see any reason why they should say something that is disadvantageous to them when there's something else they could say which is advantageous to them. So Trump might say something like his wife is the most popular first lady ever, and he'll throw that out in a speech. It is complete bull, of course, it's on, on any measurement. It's nonsense. But in order for someone who is really interested in the truth to go and find out and check the facts on that and then come back at a, at a later date and say, well, that thing you said three months ago, that was wrong. Here are the facts. He doesn't care. Mm. He probably doesn't even remember he said it. Mm. He, he didn't remember he said it a minute after he said it because whether it's true or not is not a relevant consideration for a psychopath. Mm. The only thing that matters is in this moment, is there an advantage for me to say A or B? A has more advantage, I'll say A. So what do you do? What's your advice? If you're caught in a situation, and I guess for people it can happen in personal relationships and that's that's obviously very worrying, but it can also be a little bit more insidious when it's in the workplace, right? Because it may be someone who's in power, you may not be able to sort of readily move out of your job. What are people supposed to do if there's a psychopath in their life? 
Well, I agree that it, it can happen in relationships. It happens a lot in relationships. It happens just as much in relationships as it does at work. Mm-hmm. Many people will be well and truly aware of having a psychopathic partner or a, a psychopathic relative of some some description. And, that, and the things that I'm saying about the way they behave will ring true with them. And being in a relationship with someone like that is very, very damaging. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the question you asked about work, which is if you are working for a person like this, you need to get out of there now. There are no easy solutions to this. Anyone who counsels someone working for a psychopath to do anything other than find the exit as quickly as possible is leading them into danger. You've read the book, so you've probably seen this analogy, but I'll just I'll restate it. It's like walking into a junkyard that is protected by a dangerous dog, uh, let's say, and and the dog sees you as you walk in and immediately starts snarling at you and is facing off. You hadn't seen the dog till you walked into the junkyard. What do you do? Well, there's a couple of things that you should do. Uh, one is remain very, very calm. Remain very, very clear that what your aim is, is to get out of that junkyard calmly with all of your limbs still attached. And you have to behave with that dog the way you would behave with a psychopath who was in your office. So what you wouldn't do for that dog is provoke it. You wouldn't start throwing things at it, for example. And in the office situation, that means start doing things that clearly displease the psychopath. So don't do things that they clearly don't like. Don't provoke them in any way whatsoever. Make sure you stay calm, robotic, and on task, and back carefully out of the yard. One of the other things you wouldn't do is attack the dog. You you wouldn't say, you know what, the solution here is I'm just going to go over there and I'm going to take that Doberman on. That's just not something that most people would contemplate unless they were psychopaths as well. Because you know the outcome. The dog doesn't care whether you live or die. The dog just cares that you are attacking it. Now, as it turns out from a biological perspective, a dog is a psychopath, as are 97% of the animals on the planet. Uh, Humans are very rare in having these von Economo neurons. We're not the only species, but we're certainly the only species that have them in the volume we do. Dogs are psychopaths. So in your interaction with a psychopath, it is exactly the same thing. Now, something else you could try is, so taking back the don't attack them, obviously, if the psychopath is your boss, you don't attack them. That means you don't report them to HR. You don't try to go around them to the board. You don't do any, all of that is an attack that the dog slash psychopath would see as an attack and would behave accordingly. What you've got to do is go on the defensive and get out of there. One thing that would help in both the dog situation and the boss situation is have treats. This does not mean, (laughs) (laughs) this does not mean have a pocket full of doggy treats to throw to your boss. It would work with the dog. Uh, You need to be a little bit more sophisticated with a human psychopath. Treats for a psychopath are telling them, well, flattering them, telling them nice things about themselves. They believe they are the best person in the room. Donald Trump frequently told people he was the best, you name it, greatest humanitarian, greatest general, greatest anything. And he's not unusual in that. All psychopaths firmly believe they are the best everything. And if you just tell them that you believe that too, then that's a treat for them. And they're distracted by that treat. They consider that a reward and that will give you a bit of time 
to back quietly out of the room or the, the junkyard. David, are certain people more susceptible to psychopaths or more likely to be targeted by psychopaths? You said, obviously, don't be emotional. Are people maybe who do get emotionally involved and fall into that are more reactive? Are they more likely to be targeted? Uh, Well, it depends what they have that the psychopath wants. Uh, So the psychopath is not deterred by the way you react. Other psychopaths are obviously less useful to them, less easily to manipulate it. They don't have emotions either. It's hard to push someone's buttons if they don't have any. And psychopaths would instantly recognize another psychopath and probably avoid trying to manipulate them because they know there's really nothing to manipulate. But it doesn't mean they won't attack them. It doesn't mean they won't fight back. Imagine with the junkyard again, you've got one dog, you introduce another dog that's just as vicious Maybe they'll stand there growling at each other. Maybe they'll ignore each other. Maybe they'll attack each other. Mm. But the, in terms of emotional availability, uh, yeah, look, you can make yourself more of a victim by reacting to things they do. They're looking for reactions. They want to see, can I manipulate this person? And they will do little test runs of things. Like they'll try a little bit of dishonesty, for example, or get you to be a little bit dishonest and see what you do. Do you say no? Or do you just go ahead and do it and roll over? And then they have something on you and then they know that they've got leverage. But they won't bother doing any of this if you haven't got anything they want. If you don't have any power or any control or anything that they need access to, then you're just cannon fodder and they will treat you like garbage. They they will treat you viciously. They'll display anger all of the time. They will push you around as if you're just part of the furniture. And that's the bit that causes the most distress to people in workplaces. When their boss is treating them like garbage, that's the bit that causes it to be hell to go into work every day, that causes people to suddenly start taking stress leave and looking for another job. That is what psychopaths do to everyone below them in the organisation. To everyone above them in the organisation, they've still got things that they control, that they want access to, and they will seem fabulous, which is why it is really, really hard to convince the board or HR that this person is a psychopath because their experience of this person is that they're fantastic. They're really, really terrific. And sure, some people whinge about them, but they're just disgruntled employees. I was going to yeah. ask that in your in your research, have you talked to HR departments? Because surely they would be the ones who would have a first-hand view of the fact that there were psychopaths rolling around in workplaces all over Australia. HR departments come in one of two flavours. They're either stooges of the boss, and so they will do whatever the higher-ups tell them to do, and they really won't try to upset the apple cart by going in and saying, listen, I think we've got a problem with this person here. And then the other flavour is the sort of more investigative sort, which is given a freer hand in some organisations where they are actually, they do notice it, and there are telltale signs that there's a psychopath involved. One of the big obvious giveaways, the big red flag, is if you've got a department where suddenly leave goes through the roof, sick leave suddenly goes through the roof, you're you're trundling along at 5% sick leave or something like that, and then it's up in the 40s or 50% range all of a sudden, then look immediately above that group and say, Who's their manager? 
because guarantee you what happens after that leave goes through the roof is then the resumes hit the street and before you know it all you're left with are the people who can't get a job anywhere else. So you talked about red flags what about from a personal perspective if you were thinking this person in the workplace seems to be a psychopath you knew a bit maybe you'd listen to this podcast you hear about the lack of empathy and some of those other traits what are the three biggest red flags that you're dealing with a psychopath? Oh the ones that immediately leap out to people is the first of all that uneasy feeling so a lot of people report they notice there's something off they can't nail it down but they just they feel uneasy around this person the next big red flag is the way they treat other people so you notice that gosh they're a bit brutal with so-and-so in the next department or or you know that they're they're oh geez that was a bit rough and an overreaction to that particular thing and then the next thing people often notice is that there are two different people as far as most of the people around them are concerned. There's some people who think the sun shines out of that person and there are some people who hate them with a vengeance and there doesn't seem to be anything in between. Um, so for most of us, there's people we like, there's people we don't like, there's people we can take or leave. That's not the way with psychopaths. In an organisation, if you're dealing with a psychopath, the person we're talking about is either loved or hated. Mm. The people who love them are usually above them in the organisation and think they are terrific. The people who hate them are usually below them in the organisation. And I guess then there's other things that, that start to become apparent if you're looking for them. So lying all the time. So constantly picking them up and saying, wow, they just said that, uh, that report happened last week, but I know for a fact it didn't happen last week. It was it was three weeks ago or it didn't happen at all. And and people often justify to themselves, they say, Oh, I must be I must be misremembering that. I, I you know, I they'll blame themselves. They'll say, I I must have got that wrong. Don't. Keep a record of what they say so that you can go back and check. So when they say to you, I gave you that report last week, you've got a note that shows you were never given the report. Not so you can go to them and say, you never gave me the report, because that's deciding to attack the Rottweiler. It's so that you know you're not going crazy. David, you've had such an interesting career yourself. You were a corporate lawyer, is that right? Mm-hmm. And yes. you've worked as a, an investor in uh, technology. But mm-hmm. you've also written a heap of books. I actually had yep. your book already, Brain Reset. But you've written about a really diverse range of subjects. So yes, can you tell people a little bit about the sorts of subjects you've written about? You've written about sugar and the, the, yeah, the, so, the dangers of yeah. sugar. Yeah, the first book I wrote uh, was back in 2007, and it was a book called Sweet Poison. And the, the reason I wrote it was that I was uh, 40 kilos heavier than I am now. We had four kids under the age of nine, and my wife rather inconsiderately announced that we were having twins. So, <laughs> so now you've got six kids, is that right? Yeah, so now we've got six kids, okay. and but then we were going to have, you know, six very very young kids, and two of them were going to be being breastfed for a year, which meant that I was looking after the other four and the other two when she was exhausted from the fact that she was breastfeeding twins, which were big eaters. So. Now, I was 40 kilos heavier than I am now, and I wasn't coping with that. And I'd spent most of my life gaining weight up to that point and didn't know why. I'd tried all the diet stuff. They all worked for exactly as long as my willpower held out, which was usually about two weeks. And then the weight would come on, usually with a bit of interest. Until I read some fairly interesting science, just because I was interested in finding out why. It just didn't make sense to me. 
And the science suggested that we were being told the wrong things about what made us fat and that what in fact made us fat was sugar and in particular half of sugar, uh, which is a, a molecule called fructose. So I decided I'll delete that from my diet. It was a little bit harder than it, than it sounded, um, not least because it's actually highly addictive. Mm-hmm. But if you remove sugar from your diet, then that has the effect of, well, for me, it persistent weight loss without having to worry about being on a diet or any of that kind of thing. And I thought that was miraculous. When you lose 40 kilos, people notice. And a lot of people ask, oh, uh, what did you do? And I guess I got sick of telling people and and wrote it all down. And and a friend of mine said, look, you know, I think this is something that can be sold as a book, pitched it to a publisher and uh, turned out to be a, a very big seller. And when you sell a lot of books, publishers tend to say to you, what else do you want to write about? <laughs> um, so, and so have you now just, you, you've, you've written all sorts of things about food, but as I said, you've also written about another book about a toxic people, Brain Reset, which yep. I have, which is about breaking the cycle of anxiety, depression and stress. So you've, you've become not just an author, but you're obviously a researcher because your books are quite detailed. They contain studies, yep. all sorts of information. So you've written about so much and you've obviously researched and read about a lot of different subjects. So let's talk happiness uh, generally. Mm. What's your advice for living a happy life? I tend to be driven by what the research says about biochemistry. Mm-hmm. And the the definition of happiness from a biochemical perspective um, is when the amount of dopamine that we're getting exactly matches the amount of dopamine we think we should get. So, <laughs> And the amount we think we should get is actually determined by a chemical switch called delta Fos B. And we, when we get too much dopamine too frequently, we switch that thing high and we end up potentially addicted to things which we perceive to make us happy. And when we don't get enough of those things, we switch that thing low and we get too little of the things that make us happy. Mm. Uh, so the perfect world uh, is where we have neither tipped into addiction nor tipped into depression, mm. <laughs> which is... I guess best expressed as the disappointment when we mismatch the dopamine we're receiving with the dopamine we think we should be getting. Well, David, Um, how does an ordinary person make sure their dopamine levels are completely matched? Pretty easy. Uh, Well, easy to say, harder to do. Okay. The easy thing to say is don't do things which cause you to be addicted Mm -hmm. and don't do things which puts you under stress because stress flips the switch the same direction as addiction does. So avoid stress and avoid addiction and you'll be happy. Oh, okay. That is pretty simple. (laughs) Yeah, a little harder to do. Avoid stress in particular is a little bit harder to do. (laughs) But if you're thinking, okay, well, what would I do that would give me an adequate amount of dopamine that wasn't addictive and that defeated stress? And the answer to that is strangely the things that people have been telling us to do for a long time, which is focus. Because when we focus, we generate higher levels of dopamine. And I don't just mean focus in the sense of read a page of a book. I mean totally immersed, absolute focus. The kind of state you're supposed to get to when you do meditation properly, for example, or when, if you're a creative sort, perhaps uh, when you're writing something, And people describe that as, say, getting in the flow. Mm. And most people who've ever created anything would understand that feeling. It's rare, 
You really want to achieve it, but it's hard to do with any kind of distraction. And it's where you are so focused on doing whatever it is that you're doing that you stick your head up and two or three hours have gone by and you've got no idea what happened. That is getting in the flow. That is absolute focus. Some people achieve it by playing a musical instrument. Some people achieve it by creating art or writing. Some people achieve it by building model airplanes. Some people do it with meditation. That kind of thing is an extremely effective way of getting our brain to a state where we can be happy. We live in an age of distraction. How do you Hmm. cut off distractions and focus on what you're doing so that you can hopefully get into that deep flow state? Yeah, so I live in a household where there's a bunch of teenagers now and the guaranteed time of day when I am not going to be disturbed by anyone is at four o'clock in the morning mm. um, because there's no way a teenager is going to be up at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> <laughs> um, so, unless they're getting home. Uh, so that for me, every morning up at four and I write for two hours, research slash write for two hours. And that's absolute focus. And sometimes that two hours feels like six hours. It's a grind. I just can't get into the flow and sometimes it feels like a minute and a half but I find just the habit of doing that is extraordinarily productive for me and yeah it makes me happy. Do you have any other routines that you live by that help to sort of create a happy life for you or for your family? Well just more rules than routines which is avoid doing things that are addictive and and you might say well how do you know it's addictive and the answer is if stopping it makes you distressed then it's addictive by nature. Addictive means you can't voluntarily stop it. Do you have teenage kids? From my experience with most teenagers, they have one really serious addiction and that's smartphones or their devices. Do you have rules around that? Even though they went to high schools that uh, required them to have iPads, which to me is nonsensical. I mean, there's nothing addictive about an iPad, but there's a hell of a lot addictive about some of the apps that are on it. Mm. And so... We banned usage of those devices in the house. We banned them absolutely on holidays and after school hours, only sitting in a in a in a central place in the house uh, where anyone could see what was on the screen because they were only supposed to be being used for schoolwork. And that made us troglodytes or Neanderthals or whatever you want. And we never won any parenting awards for that, but I'm very, very glad that we did that. They never had a phone during high school. Well, not a phone in the sense that they think of a phone. I mean, the only app a teenager doesn't use on their phone is the one that actually makes it behave like a phone. I know. That was the... <laughs> for a device that they're always on, they can be sometimes incredibly hard to reach by phone. That's right, <laughs> yes. So we got them phones. Uh, look, here's one here. You know, one of these great things. Oh. Um so we got them those and they could still be phoned and they could still send text but messages. they're not but smartphones. No. So there's no apps. There's no access to the internet. There's none of that kind of thing. So that's interesting. It's a really hard thing, I think, for a lot of parents to contemplate letting their children or, or not letting their children have access to smartphones and devices. You've stood right against the, the big wave that's coming at them. How do, you, yeah, how, do you, how do you think they benefited? I think we held potential addiction at bay during the important part of their growth. Uh, th- there's a reason why all addictions peak during teenage years. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at the statistics on any addiction, and I'm not talking about just phones and games and things like that, I'm talking about drugs, anything. 
they peak during the teenage years because at that particular stage of brain development, we turn off a switch that, that protects our brains called the, the GABA switch, G-A-B-A. Now, GABA is turned off to allow us to enter puberty and stays off for 10 years. It's slowly coming back on from the start of puberty through to the early 20s. If you can avoid exposing a human brain to addiction, during, particularly during those early teen years, so from, say, 13 to 19, if you can avoid it there, you've dodged a bullet because it is much harder to addict a human brain once you get past that stage because then the GABA switch is back on and it is much, much harder to turn liking something into being addicted to it. And how old are your kids now, David? Uh, so the youngest ones are now 19. Okay, so they're so they're yeah. older. They can buy their own smartphones. Yeah. Or... yeah, they have. They both uh, the twins, the nineteen year olds, both have their own smartphones, and and we do our best still because they both still live at home. Uh, do our best uh, still to police that. Uh, still no phones in bedrooms at night. Still no, you know, using them out of public spaces. I'm sure they get to use Instagram and all that stuff, and we have a lot of. Let, lot, lot less control over what they do, mm. but at least we've got them through that part where they're at most risk. And do you think, aside from that addiction aspect, do you think that as a result of not having used smartphones for so long, I mean, what what did you see? What were the results? Were they more creative? I, I think kids are quite stressed. I think I think phones and and devices tend to cause a lot of anxiety in kids. But I don't know, did you see that sort of a difference in the way that they were compared to other kids? It's hard to know because you don't have a case control study where you can see what your kids would have been like had you let them have access True. to it. <laughs> but I mean, you we had the perfect scenario at, with twins. Yeah, that's right. But we had the perfect scenario with twins. We should have let one have the phone <laughs> and the other not. And then we, then we would have been able to, you know, run a, run a proper I think, trial. I if you did that, you would have grown a psychopath. In one of the yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, um, the, we can say what they've avoided. You know, touch wood, they have avoided most of the things that largely affect large numbers of kids their age. Mm. So anxiety, depression, you know, all of that kind of stuff. They don't appear to be addicted to anything. Uh, they appear to be able to just behave normally with normal impulse control, with normal levels of anxiety. They, they seem like normal kids. They remind me of me when I was a kid. Mm. You know? And that's a good thing because there's a lot of kids out there who don't remind me of me when, when I was a kid, who are very definitely addicted to things mm. and who are very definitely suffering the consequences of it. If I asked your kids or your, your wife, what's the three pieces of advice that David has said over the years that they heard over and over again? Don't eat sugar. Um, and none of them do. Uh, so there's that. Don't eat sugar, and uh, what will be, don't eat seed oils, which is another thing I've written about, which is, if possible, even worse for you than sugar. And avoid addiction. Stay off devices as much as you can, because that's the prevalent form of addiction in society today. And look, we're just at the start of it. Devices capable of the things that we are currently seeing have only existed since 2010, mm. which is a, a blip. Mm. And the generation that have grown up with that 24-7 in their pockets when they were teenagers are just becoming adults right now. So you ain't seen nothing yet in terms of the flow-on effects of that. The the anxiety and depression are already off the scale. Mm. It's nothing compared to what we're going to see when everybody in a population is like that. Yeah. 
David, I love this book, Toxic at Work, and I would just encourage anyone to look up your range of books, obviously, and get them where books are sold online or in in bookstores. You've written about a, a huge range of subjects which are really interesting, and I can't wait to see the next one. Any hints about what it's going to be about? Oh, well, I've put three proposals up. My favourite is luck. So the role of luck in so-called success in life and can it be manipulated? Uh, I love that. Well, look, do do you not think that people can, to some degree, make their own luck? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, it's an area I'd love to research. It's an area I'm thinking about writing about. It's an area my publisher is not wild on at the moment, so we'll see. Uh, all right. Well, I give it the thumbs up. I would, I, would definitely, I would definitely read that. Okay. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for jumping on and, and having a chat to us today and, um, and enjoy the rest of your device-free evening. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, David.